Welcome to the serialized audiobook of The Starter, Season 3 of the Galactic Football League series, written and performed by Scott Sigler. The Starter is also available as an ebook and as an ad free, unabridged audiobook. For links to purchase any version, visit scottsigler.com slash the starter. An excerpt from Species Biology and Football, written by Cho Ah Huity. Sclorno Twins, a rare form of double trouble. Sclorno egg clusters produce broods of eight, ten, or twelve children. It is always an even number, because eggs sprout from both sides of the midline reproductive channel. That means, if there are ten broodlings, there are five sets of identical twins. So why don't we see an endless parade of Sclorno twin sisters dominating professional football? Because, as a species, the Sclorno are rather hungry. The egg cluster develops inside the mother's body. By the end of her four-month term, she will double or triple in weight. Her tail will grow to five or six times its original length and mass. As the egg cluster develops, the mother's body undergoes physical changes that will allow for the depositing of the egg cluster. The mother's body widens at the hips, greatly reducing the sclono's speed. Hence, motherhood is an automatic end to any GFL career. Each pair of eggs within the cluster can be male or female. Male eggs hatch while the cluster is still inside the mother, so males benefit from a live birth. What is that benefit, you ask? The benefit is that as soon as they are born, they can move away from any sisters that remain in the cluster. If the males do not move away, far, far away, I might add, they are not going to live long. Three to five days after the mother passes the egg cluster, Scalorno female infants burst free. Within hours of hatching, they have full coordination and differ from adults in little more than size. While the hatchlings already possess well-developed physical capability, mental maturity doesn't arrive for three to four weeks. In short, the infant Scalorno females are small killing machines with no sentience whatsoever. They attack any moving thing that is their size or smaller, and if they succeed in killing it, they eat it. This immediate kill-or-be-killed environment has put heavy evolutionary pressure on speed. The faster the sclorno female, the more likely that she will find slower, weaker prey, and the more likely that she will avoid larger pursuers. Only the females that avoid being eaten live to see sentience. This sounds like a brutal, primitive system. The casual observer might logically assume that the now highly advanced Sclorno race separates the hatchlings. That casual observer would be wrong. As a species, the Sclorno are already dealing with enormous overpopulation pressures. Protecting each hatchling is not high on the list of priorities. Almost every Sclorno adult killed in eight, three, four, or more of her own broodmates before sentience manifested. To the Scalorno, this process is considered an ancient rite of passage, a fact of life as basic and necessary as reproduction itself. Because the twins are identical, they have the same size and speed. They can't escape each other, 
driving them to an almost immediate confrontation, a lethal confrontation. This is why you see very few adult twins in Sklorno culture. The one exception to this rule is that of conjoined twins, which occur about once in every 100,000 births. Normally, these twins are conjoined in a way that slows them down and makes them easy prey for their broodmates. Occasionally, however, the twin sisters are joined by a tentacle, an eye stalk, or some other way that doesn't interfere with running. When this happens, it is a powerful combination indeed. Now, instead of two individuals fighting for survival, the conjoined twin sisters act as a single organism, bigger and stronger than all of their broodmates. Once sentience occurs, the conjoined sisters always opt for separation surgery. They remain emotionally close, however, and usually stay together as they go through life. Several sets of twin Sklorno succeeded in the GFL, including Adelberg and Bamberg, receivers for the Yall Criminals, and the Hall of Fame cornerbacks known as Sisters of the Holy Shutdown, who anchored the secondary for the Hitoni Hullwalkers during their championship seasons of 2671 to 2673. The touchback remained in orbit around INF, isolated and safe from attack, thanks to a generous no-approach cushion provided by flights of Quith military fighter craft. Greedock, it seemed, had called in some markers to make sure no one came after his players. Quentin stood in the waiting area just outside the touchback's landing bay, marveling at how so much could change in such a short time. Through a viewport, he watched the orange and black shuttle sliding out of the void, and through the bay's big airlock doors. It had returned from the former prison station now known as the Combine, rookies in tow. Had it really only been 13 weeks since he had arrived as a rookie, walking out of the shuttle and into his new home, his new life? Until then, he'd never seen anything but purest nation space, never seen an actual alien other than the bats, let alone played football with them. John Tweedy walked up and stood next to Quentin. Tweedy was bouncing from foot to foot, rolling out his neck and flexing his muscles. He looked a lot like he did every time the defense took the field. I eat rookies and crap cornflakes, scrolled across his face tattoo. Pretty wild, eh, Q? I mean, the rookie stick is barely off of you, and here you are, welcoming in a new crop. Bite me, Tweedy. That stink is yours. Where I come from... We wash with soap and water. Where you come from, country boy, running water is probably called a miracle. Just wait until your people discover that wild new invention, electricity. Then the real fun will begin. You're hysterical. I know. And why do you call me country boy? It's a figure of speech, your hickness. Hey, they done with your room upgrades yet? They're finishing now. I get to program everything tonight. Did they put in one of those primitive water showers you're always whining about? Quentin shook his head. Since leaving the purest nation, he'd had to suffer through the, quote, civilized, unquote, version of personal hygiene in the form of nanite showers. Little swarms of microscopic robots that scoured your skin free of dirt and oil. Ah, they wouldn't put in a water shower, Quentin said. Greedock wouldn't spring for it when the nanite showers work fine for everyone else. I got him to put in a weight bench, though. You had a weight bench put in your room? Why not just use the weight room in the gym? Quentin shrugged. 
I'll use that as well. I want the bench in my room so I can work out first thing in the morning. John stared at him. I know you already work out at lunch and after practice. You work out in the morning too? Quentin nodded. Morning lifting, then passing routes in the VR room, then running, then team and position meetings, then lunch, then practice, uh, then I run again after practice, then holo review in my room for two hours, uh, then I lift again, shower, and go to bed. John shook his head. Boy, you are not well. You got that right. I got a disease, and a championship is the only cure. John rolled his eyes. Oh man, is that corny. You practice that one? Quentin laughed. Actually, yeah, working on corny phrases and some pregame chants to get everybody pumped up. You want to hear them? Not now, John said. Leave me be for a while to think about how you outwork me and everyone else who has ever played the damn game. Quentin watched the shuttle settle onto the landing bay deck. Watched the bay doors slide shut. Pressure equalized, a computer voice called out moments later. Landing bay now safe to enter. The waiting area doors hissed open. Quentin, John, and most of the team filtered into the landing bay. The rookies are almost all defensive players, John said. We get just one DB this time. Hey, I wonder if we get another quarterback. We could use a real quarterback, not the backwater pansy we got now. John, Quentin said, you bore me. Yasud walked up to join them. He'd replaced his orange beard string with a gold one that gleamed under the landing bay's lights. Boys, Yasud said. I hear we got a running back in that shuttle somewhere. John smiled. Probably our new starter. You'll be lucky if we even keep you around for punt returns. Shuck you, Tweety, Yasud said. In the climate-ravaged world of 2072, the city of Pura stands as a miraculous green haven. Pura is a geoengineered paradise that protects its fortunate residents from the global catastrophes of heat domes, fires, floods, and droughts. In a time when the world outside is unsafe, it's vital for Pura's existence that people rally behind the purpose of the city, and Demetria Lopez, head of the city's public relations, tirelessly promotes its idyllic image. But when she stumbles on a dark secret that, if exposed, would be the downfall of Pura's existence, she must decide who and what she's willing to protect. From Wondery, the makers of Academy and Dr. Death, The Last City stars actors Ray Seahorn, Jeannie Tirado, and Maury Sterling. Follow The Last City on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of The Last City early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery+. Plus. island in frigid lake superior a fabricated creature birthed from the mind of a disturbed genius stalks the very people who created it ancestor by number one new york times best-selling author scott sigler is a classic tale of science gone horribly wrong available wherever you get your podcasts the shuttle side door lowered Hokor and Greedock were the first to exit. Shizzle flew out and flapped around the landing bay, but he wasn't the only flyer. A hurrah eased out in that species' half-flying, half-floating style. He wore an orange and black backpack that looked just like the one Doc had worn on the sidelines. This hurrah was bigger, though, and his skin looked... totter, almost artificial. Must be the new Doc, John said. He looks... weird, Quentin said. 
something wrong with him? Him or her, John said. I can never tell the difference with the flappies. Looks like it has had tons of cosmetic surgery, and not very good surgery at that. Greedock stood and stared at the gathered team, who quickly fell silent and waited. My growing network of scouts discovered these highly talented players, he said. Make these rookies feel like part of our little family. And this, Greedock gestured up to the floating hurrah, is Doc Patah. He is our new team physician. I'm sure that all of you will be getting one-on-one time with him soon enough. With that, Greedock walked through the much larger football players that parted to let him by. Doc Patah flew along behind him. Watching the hurrah, Quentin felt a stab of sadness at the death of the Kraken's former physician. Quentin hadn't even known the hurrah's real name, just called him Doc, like everyone else on the team. That wasn't right. The team doctor was a lifeline to victory, keeping players healthy, patching them up so they could continue to produce. Quentin made a mental note that he would get to know this Doc Batah, treat him like the invaluable part of the team that he was. The first rookies out were two long-limbed Sklorno wearing orange Krakens jerseys, number 31 and 13. Again, Quentin thought about how much had changed in his life. Three months ago at the Combine, he'd met Denver and Milford, the first Scalorno he'd ever seen in person. Their translucent, flexible chitin skin and fluttering muscles had been so disturbing up close. Now, nothing he hadn't seen a thousand times. Well, that wasn't quite true. He'd seen Scalorno a thousand times, sure, but never any as big as these two. Wahiwa and Halawa. He already had their stats memorized. Both stood 9 feet 6 inches tall. Both weighed 325 pounds. Because of their size and speed, they had been placed in developmental football leagues at just 18 months old. When they were full-grown at 6 years of age, they joined the Chachana Football Collective, one of the Sklerno Dynasty's Tier 3 leagues. After two years there, the 8-year-old Awa sisters were now Krakens. Man, Yasud said. They look like clones. Twins, Quentin said. I thought Sklorno babies ate each other. Most of the time they do. These two shared an eye stock at one point, so they were like uh, the same sentient or something. Wimps, John said. It's much cooler when they eat each other. I wish I'd eaten my brother when we were kids. I hate Jew, scrolled across his face. Quentin laughed to himself as he recalled John's brother, the all-tier two running back for the orbiting death. The Krakens had fought a pitched battle against the death just a few weeks earlier. The Mad Jew, as the press called him, had put three Kraken linebackers out of the game, including John. Hey, Yasud said, they each only have three eye stalks instead of four. You see that? Quentin nodded. Yeah, they had to cut that eye stalk off to separate them, so they each only have three. He just hoped three eye stalks would let Halawa see his passes, because he was excited to have such a big receiving target. Nine foot six. Taller than any veteran Kraken's receiver. Even her legs looked larger than others of her species. Giant, folded, leaping machines. He'd be able to throw the ball up high to her in the corner of the end zone. She'd jump up on those big legs, reach up with two long tentacles that stuck out of her chest. Very few defensive backs, if any could go high enough to stop her from coming down with the ball. Tweedy started laughing. Oh, man, you have to be kidding me. That is Mitchell Fayette's replacement? The mention of the dead running back drew Quentin's attention. Coming down the shuttle ramp, he
he saw what had to be a mistake. As big as the Awa sisters were for Sklorno, this guy was little for a human player. He wore a jersey with the number 21. Wow, Quentin said. He is small. Damn near a midget, Tweedy said. Oh man, we are so desperate. A midget? Quentin said. What's that? Yasud and Tweedy looked at him. What? Quentin said. What are you looking at? John shook his head and rolled his eyes. Never mind, Q. I forget that the purest nation isn't big on people with congenital defects. We don't have any congenital defects in the purest nation. John and Yasud both started laughing. Quentin didn't get the joke. Quentin sighed and looked over the new running back. Number 21, Dan Campbell. At six foot two, 230 pounds, he wasn't small by normal human standards, but in this landing bay, the only human smaller than him was Ariok Morningstar, the Kraken's kicker. Hey, Sood, John said. You might as well hang up the cleats right now, Chief. Yasud shook his head. I've got ten grand that says the midget doesn't make it out of training camp. I'll take that bet, Quentin said. He'd memorized Campbell's stats as well. A combined 40-yard dash of 3.6 seconds. Fairly fast for a human, but nothing really special. Campbell's acceleration and agility numbers, however, were nearly off the charts. Maybe he wasn't the fastest guy in the league, but when he got the ball, he would hit his top speed almost instantly. You are on, Yasud said. He and Quentin shook hands, and the bet was official. Next out of the shuttle came a key, bigger than most of his kind, but nothing out of the ordinary for an offensive lineman. Shun An Wan, Quentin said, played Tier 3 in the Craffle. Craffle was an acronym for the Key Rebel Alliance Football League. John crossed his arms over his chest. Hey, sure doesn't look like much. And according to Shun An's scores at the Combine, the Key rookie wasn't much. He charted firmly in the middle in every category. Nothing that bad. Nothing that great. That is the best we could do, Yasud said. If this Shunan one doesn't work out, then I don't have a right guard to block for me. I don't think Akanatak is going to make it. He'll be back, Quentin said. Akana will be back. If only Quentin felt as confident as he sounded. Akanatak still hadn't recovered from injuries sustained in the game against the Texas Earthlings. The lineman was out another two to three weeks. Oh, this is crap, Yasud said. How am I going to run the ball with no line? And then, number 38, the final rookie, walked down the ramp. Quentin looked at her, already feeling animosity. But that was silly. She was here for a reason, and that reason didn't conflict with Quentin's goals. Rebecca Montaigne, also known as Becca the Recca. Six foot six, 330 pounds of muscle. She wore her long black hair tied back in a tight ponytail. Big, solid, athletic, and yet still clearly feminine. A strange combination. Oh, yeah, John said. About time we got some ladies in here that don't spend all their time worshipping Quentin and drooling all over the place. Ew, Yasud said. Tweety, are you serious? That chick is a heavy G-girl. Her butt is bigger than yours. Exactly, Tweety said. Uncle Johnny likes him healthy. Quentin, what's her name? Rebecca Montaigne, fullback. Played Tier 3 in the NFL on Earth for the Green Bay Packers. Wait a minute, Yasud said. Rebecca, why do I know that name? Oh, wait, I know. She's got a cool nickname. What is it? Oh, it's on the tip of my tongue. Becca the Recca, Quentin said. 
Yasud snapped his fingers and smiled. That's it! Rekka, John said, his eyes even more alive at the possibility that this heavy G woman was somehow known for violence. Why do they call her that, Q? Because of the way she hits when she runs the ball. John looked to the ceiling, raised his hands as if in prayer. Quentin, you've got to thank your high one for delivering an angel like this to me. She hurts people while running the ball? That is all kinds of mean. I like it. Did the Packers run the fullback a lot? Quentin shrugged, but Yasud snapped his fingers again. Wait a minute. Now I remember why I've heard of her. The Packers were trying some Bush League stuff in the NFL, running the option offense, where the quarterback carries the ball. John looked from Quentin to Yasud, then back to Quentin again. A smile crept across his face. Quentin saw the smile, felt his own face getting hotter, redder. But there was no reason for him to get this angry. Becca was there to play fullback, to block for Yusud or whoever else played running back. Worse, John Tweedy always knew when Quentin was upset and never missed a chance to exploit it. Oh, man, John said. Quentin? Was Becca the Recca a quarterback? Quentin gritted his teeth and nodded. Tweedy stared blankly at Quentin for a few seconds, then threw his head back and laughed. You're killing me, Whitey, flashed across his face. Quentin nodded angrily. She's here to be a fullback, John, so just keep on laughing. John did, even harder. His hands dropped to his knees, as if he could barely stand up. Ho, ho, he said, trying to suck in a breath. You better hope that she, you better hope that she knows her role and doesn't come after your spot. She's a fullback. Tom Perilous is retiring after this season, and we needed a fullback to replace him. You take the best athlete available for the position, and Hokor thinks she can start next year as our fullback. Quentin knew that. Hokor knew that. And Rebecca Montaigne had better know that. Whatever position she wound up playing, if she played at all, Quentin would make sure she didn't entertain any ideas of playing quarterback. That was his position. And if Don Pine couldn't take it away from him, then no one else should even try. Just as he'd programmed the night before, the lights in his small bedroom flicked on at 5.30 in the morning. Quentin Barnes sat up. He'd already been awake for 10 minutes, maybe 15, but he'd forced himself to stay in bed. Soon, his body would adapt to the new schedule. It was time to make everything obey his will. His body, his drive, his team, even time itself. Everything would align. He would make it so, because he had a championship to win. The smart paper walls of his apartment were white when he awoke. As he walked out of the bedroom to the living room, every wall faded into a sequence of still pictures that slowly painted a chronological history of the game. Quentin bent stretching his hamstrings, his calves, his groin, feeling delicious pain in his muscle fibers as black-and-white, two-dimensional images showed faces like Tittle, Unitas, Baugh, Lane, Thorpe, Pollard, Nagurski. He stretched his arms as the two-dimensional images changed to full color with faces like Campbell, Butkus, Landry, Brown, Staubach, Bradshaw, Rice, Tatum, Montana, Lewis. The images then changed to three-dimensional holograms, faces like 
Aronic, Kuna Shaka, Jacksonville, Tarat the Smasher, Smith, Picor the Unquestioned, Zimmer, Pine. All of them, the faces of champions. Quentin finished his stretching routine, then started it all over again, forcing himself to go farther each time, to feel more pain, to hear everything his body had to say. You listened to pain, but you didn't obey it. Pain was a servant, a reminder that you were one of the few sentients lucky enough to be alive at this moment, at this time in history. The holo tank flicked on at 6 a.m., exactly when he finished his second round of stretching. Before moving on to his next task, he waited just long enough to see what game the computer randomly selected. Super Bowl 79, the Grand Rapids Lions versus the Mexico City Conquistadors, back in the ancient times when there was the NFL and nothing else, when there was only one planet playing football, centuries before the Lions moved to Thomas III. He'd never watched this game. The recorded crowd filled his room with a roar as he moved to the weight bench. The rig consisted of a padded bench and a horizontal bar above it. The bar was steel with soft black handles on either end. Right at the middle of that bar, another bar connected, making a T, the T-post leading into a vertical slot in the wall. The wall had other attachments sticking out of it, individual handles that could be pulled or pushed, giving Quentin any number of weightlifting options. He would use all of the attachments for a full-body workout. His favorite, though, by far, was the tried-and-true bench press. He lay back on the bench, then reached up to grab the padded handles, his hands shoulder-width apart. In the space between his hands, the bar showed a readout in red letters, 400 pounds. He looked up at the ceiling, where the smart paper showed the silver and blue lions rushing out of the tunnel, preparing for the biggest game of their lives. Every player he saw up there was long since dead, the game having taken place more than six centuries earlier. Dead, but not forgotten. Every player was forever notched in the glory of history. Every player was eternal. Give me music, Quentin said. The first song on his playlist faded in. His favorite band, Trench Warfare, the long melodic guitar intro to their hit Combat Bats. He would watch the game and listen to the music. He couldn't work out and watch Trench Warfare. The band's lead singer, Somalia Midori, was far too distracting for that. Quentin lowered the bar to his chest, then pressed. The 400 pounds went up smooth and easy. He lowered the bar and repeated watching the ceiling as the players took to the field. He hit 10 reps before his muscles started to burn. Another half hour of weights. Then, it was time to hit the virtual practice field for 20 minutes before the 7 a.m. position meeting. You have been listening to The Starter, 
season three of the Galactic Football League series. Written and performed by Scott Sigler. Produced by Ariok Morningstar with post-production by Steve Rickyberg. For more information on Scott and more free stories, go to scottsigler.com. Theme music is the song The Kids Are Coming For You by the band Superweapon. Superweaponband.com. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available.